0: Welcome in to another UAP adventure. It's Stephen Diener here on episode 63 of UAP, the unidentified alien podcast. So happy you can join me here today in what uh, ends up being the Alaska Triangle, the week from hell. You'll see why that is in just a little while. But I'm very excited to cover this topic with you today because I've been teasing it for, gosh, what feels like almost a month now. We keep talking about this saying, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. But Nevertheless, we're finally going to do that and get into the legends and the tales surrounding the Alaska Triangle. And I didn't mean to wait just, you know, for to let you know to to wait this long, but there's just so much that I always want to cover with each subject that we get into. And sometimes things just kind of like inadvertently end up getting pushed back a little bit because I realize, hey, this is getting pretty long and I don't have enough time anymore. But I am happy we get to discuss it now so we can devote this entire episode to some of the crazy happenings and the legends of the Alaska Triangle. That said, I want to address something first because I'm sure you've noticed that Karen uh, was not with me last time and she's not with me today. So I'm sure you noticed that difference and I don't want to pretend like that's not happening. So I want to let you know that I will be flying solo on UAP from here on out. And this is not a slight to Karen by any means she's doing fine. There's nothing wrong with her or anything like that. And we remain great friends. We're always still texting back and forth. It's just without getting into major specifics, I'll just say that sometimes circumstances, uh, they, they change around us and that's in life and anything that's, you know, jobs or life or anything. And sometimes those circumstances that change are just out of our control and we just have to adapt. And that's where we are right now. So I'm not going to lie, I was actually really nervous to see how you were going to respond to the previous episode, because that was the first one I did on my own, and honestly, it was strange doing it without Karen, we've done so many shows together, and I wasn't sure what the future held at that point, but it seems like you enjoyed it still, I mean, the the downloads and, and everything um, that I saw on that from from, from you told me that I guess you still like it, so we're going to just keep pressing on here, and hopefully you still enjoy UAP, even as though it's just little old me, Stephen Diener. And I know we all love Karen, so I really hope that we can uh, adapt together and still continue to enjoy the show and, and this journey together. So there you go. How about our factoid, huh? This one actually comes to us from uh, our listeners in Alaska Because since we're talking about the Alaska Triangle today, so shout out to Julian, who wrote to the show on Twitter, at UAPodcast850, if you ever want to reach out to us there on on Twitter. And he gave some personal uh, accounts on what it's like to actually live within the Alaska Triangle. Now, just to give you some perspective, the triangle starts at the northern tip of Alaska. Let me tell you, kind of paint this picture first of what the Alaska Triangle is, geographically speaking. So you have... The northern tip, like, I mean, like, central north, okay? Think of, like, the North Star, central north of Alaska, right in the middle, and then it ranges south to Anchorage, then it stretches southeast to Juneau, kind of uh, stretching over the Yukon Territory as well of Canada, as it reaches back up northeast To what resembles uh, a triangle that almost looks like an archer's bow, if you can imagine that. That's what the Alaska Triangle is and the ground that it covers. Obviously a huge area because Alaska itself is huge. And according to our listener Julian, he says the wilderness in that area is unlike anything that most people are used to. And sometimes it just comes down to travelers going missing because they're just not familiar with the terrain and, and the natural dangers that that presents. He also says that he has heard stories from his own loved ones of many strange occurrences and even sightings that have taken place there in where he lives that defy explanation to him and his family to this day. He did kind of talk about different tales that people tell involving UFOs and even skinwalkers. We talked about skinwalkers before in a previous episode at Skinwalker Ranch and the legends surrounding that. So again, this is coming straight from someone who has experience with this area living there. So I felt it important to give that firsthand perspective. And I thank you again, Julian, for that. And again, if you ever want to reach out to us with your own personal um, you know, accounts or stories or even ideas or feedback, you could always do that at UAPodcast850. I read everything, I reply to everything as best I can, and I always appreciate anybody who reaches out to give some feedback. So what are we going to find out today? Will these stories be easily explainable by natural causes, or will they be closer linked to some of the legends and unexplained phenomenon in this area known as the Alaska Triangle? Let's go ahead and find out in what I like to call the Triangle Trifecta, which turned out to be Hell Week in Alaska. Why is that? Well, we start off talking about three separate incidents that took place around Anchorage, Alaska within the span of one week. These six to seven days were about as chaotic as it can get, and it all started on January twenty-second, nineteen fifty. That's on that day became known as the Kodiak Encounter. It took place on January twenty-second, nineteen fifty, to begin this hellish week in Alaskan. Here's here's a little sample of that. There was a Navy pilot that witnessed a UFO. This UFO was clocked on radar going 1,800 miles per hour. And during that time, we didn't have anything that could go that fast. So I find it very interesting. The plane's radar operator reported the strangest interference he had ever seen. The control tower was in a state of panic. There should have been no other aircraft in the area. Okay, so let's just take this back a little bit. First of all, 1,800 miles per hour. Like you heard the uh, the man say there, 1,800 miles per hour. We didn't really have that in 1950. Of course, you start to hear about the strange interference. How many times have we heard that when it comes to interference on different instruments and things of that nature, whether maybe it's magnetic interference or something, whatever it might be? We hear about that all the time with UFO or UAP encounters. But let's, let's look a little bit at the context here of the Kodiak encounter, because you hear right there a little, you know, set the table, so to speak, of the strange happening that's that they're witnessing. So the timing of all this and how this all comes together is really fascinating. First, you have this Navy patrol pilot. His name was Lieutenant Smith. He was making just... Another routine security flight at 2.40 a.m. And, again, there's that word. If you remember last time on the Bermuda Triangle episode, I always say it was just kind of weird how these flights that disappear or experience strange things are always routine or they're always in clear blue skies, whatever it might be. It's just, I don't know, I just find that strange. All these mysterious things always seem to happen when it's, you know, like, you know, the routine flight. But it's just kind of funny. I don't know. Just weird. He notices the UFO as you heard there in the clip, and he tries to track it until it disappears. Then what happens next is around 3 a.m., the USS Tillamook, which was south of Kodiak, uh, just kind of stationed over there off of Alaska, one of the men on the deck saw a very fast-moving red glowing light, which appeared to be of exhaust nature, was his quote. Another officer came out to look, saw it, and saw for about 30 seconds and then described it as like a large ball of orange fire. And of course, find this very interesting. No sound came from the source of light. How about that? Because that's always a, a a true sign of a, you know, a real UFO or UAP encounter. They always talk about you don't hear anything. You just see the light or it flies over their head. They never heard anything which is always you know, one of those things that kind of points to, hey, maybe we got something here. So what about Lieutenant Smith? Well, his encounter was far from over. At around 4.40 a.m., a couple hours after his original sighting, Lieutenant Smith was still on patrol when he picked up another blip on his radar. It was moving so fast that it left a trail on his screen. Can you imagine that? He called this crew who immediately saw the object Closed a five-mile gap, get this, in 10 seconds. So was this the same UFO from just a couple hours earlier that he saw? Or was this something different? I mean, this closed a five-mile gap in 10 seconds. All he knew is that he wanted answers. So what does he do? He decides to try and pursue it. But according to the report, it was actually too elusive and, in his words, exhibited a maneuverability that that he could not match up with in his aircraft. Witnesses described also seeing those two familiar orange lights, and they said that they actually saw it rotating around a center point. So all this is taking place, this Kodiak encounter. In the midst of the chase, business quickly picked up for Lieutenant Smith as the object made a sharp turn and headed directly toward his airplane in a move that he considered to be, and this was in the report, he used the words, It was a highly threatening gesture. My gosh. This caused him to turn off his lights, actually. He's just hoping that maybe the UFO might lose him somehow. Or just leave him alone. Show that he's not a threat because he turned his lights off. He's not, you know, really posing any type of threat. And it actually worked because the UFO flew by and then disappeared. To this day, this so-called Kodiak encounter remains completely unexplained. But what we do know is that this incident did take place within the Alaska Triangle and that official reports were filed on it all the way up the chain of command within the FBI and military intelligence communities, which is why we even know this story, because this was documented. This was documented within the military intelligence communities and reported to the highest sources. And trust me, they investigated. They talked to Lieutenant Smith. This was something that they just could not figure out. That's day one of Hell Week in Alaska in the Alaska Triangle because next we have our second point of this trifecta, another encounter that remains unexplained as we move forward four days. Okay, so now we're going to fast forward here four days into the week after the Kodiak incident. Except this story here starts with a crew of 44 men who were never to be seen again. In one of the big mystery disasters of the u.s air force the plane vanished so that plane was a douglas c-54 aircraft and just to give you a little background on that in case you're not familiar with your world war ii aircraft this was no small airplane it was modeled after the civilian dc-4 and it was used as a transport plane it had four engines on it and it was heavily relied on during world war ii and the korean war actually but on this day it would fall victim to the wilderness of Alaska, or maybe something more sinister that lies within the Alaska Triangle. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Album, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rainn Wilson, Amor Tulls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The mystery begins on the afternoon of January 26, 1950, again four days right after the Kodiak encounter, when these 44 ill-fated men were taking off from Elmendorf Air Force Base in Anchorage. I want you to remember that name, Elmendorf Air Force Base, because it comes up again. This is where the, DC, the, uh, the C-54, the Douglas, took off from. It started to make their way toward Montana. That was the planned flight, Anchorage, Alaska to Montana. For the record, and maybe not shocking at all, guess what? The pilots enjoyed clear blue skies as they made their way. It was about two hours into the flight when they were flying over the Yukon Territory of Canada, which, again, is in the southeastern portion of the Triangle. That's when they made one of their routine check-ins with the tower. Now they were doing this about every 30 minutes. That was part of the exercise to check in with the tower. There were no signs of distress or calls of mayday when they checked in. It was just a normal check-in. But the thing is, it turned out to be the last time the crew was ever heard from because shortly after that check-in, the plane lost contact and disappeared forever seemingly. Now, According to David Downing, he's the, uh, by the way, the head of the Yukon's Civil Air Search and Rescue Association. So kind of an important guy. He knows his stuff, I would say. He said in a recent interview that whatever happened to the Douglas happened very quickly. Okay? It's not like they had engine trouble and they were slowly easing altitude to turn around to go back, he says. He continues, they could have communicated all that. So what did happen to the missing Douglas? Well, maybe we should take this classified, declassified, actually, I should say, uh, since the 1970s, been declassified for a while because of a Freedom of Information Act. When you hear this report, I think we should probably take this into consideration when we start thinking about what happened to the Douglas. A top secret intelligence report from February 10th, 1950, reveals that UFOs were stalking U.S. naval planes just days before the Douglas vanished. The first of these encounters was above the Naval Air Station of Kodiak. Only 250 miles southwest of the Douglas' departure point in Anchorage. Ah, oh, So there we go. I mean, look at that. Is it possible that our first story about the Kodiak encounter could have been like some sort of recon mission or intelligence gathering exercise? Maybe? I mean, that would lead to the abduction of an aircraft just four days later. I mean, when you think about this, there's no coincidence here think about any other military exercise and again i'm complete this is complete speculation and that's you know what we do here together we i give you the story and you kind of decide what to make of it yourself but the way i see this and the way i connect the dots on this is if you're talking about any type of military exercise okay maybe you it's it's a during the war or or something whatever it might be you have military men or women Generals, whatever, who plan things out and say, okay, before we attack a spot, we're going to scope out the area, right? We're going to check out our adversaries' defenses. So now you're talking about something here that sounds just like that. If you go back four days earlier to the Kodiak encounter, you're talking about this, you know, these strange lights, this strange orange glow, uh, glowing orb or some you know referred to it as on the USS Tillamook, or even a red type of trail to it. So the, a lot of guys are seeing this. A lot of a lot of naval guys are seeing this at the time, and it's chasing <laughs> one of the Navy pilots, as we heard in the Kodiak encounter. I mean, it took a sharp turn. We always talk about you know the uh, observables. What really kind of goes into a true sighting, a true encounter with UFOs, you know slash UAP you know, instantaneous acceleration. And then you also have, of course, you, you know, these, these, the maneuverability that could not be performed by a human or an aircraft made by humans. That's what it sounded like to me in the Kodiak encounter when you're talking about an aircraft that was, or an object anyway, that was going 1,800 miles per hour. We didn't have craft like that in 1950. And it was outmaneuvering, you know, one of our best pilots in the Navy and, you know, one of one of our fighter jets, you, you got to remember, this is 1950. So it's a few years after the war is over. So you would think at that point, if we had any adversaries, whether, you know, in, in the Soviet Union or whatever, Korea, because that was around the time of, of, you know, that war in 1950, that if, if they had something stronger than us, <laughs> then we would have known about it. So what was outmaneuvering one of our pilots in 1950, what was outrunning one of our pilots in 1950? What was able to make that sharp turn, right? Again, one of those true signs of a, a, a real sighting. And that's something that when I look at that four days earlier, that, that's just to my opinion here. That is a clear case of military recon. I mean, you're, you're checking out, again, your adversary's defenses, you're, you're learning things. And then all of a sudden, four days later, in the same area... An airplane with 44 men goes missing with no sign or trace of them. I mean, in clear blue skies in the afternoon, they're checking into the tower. Everything's fine. And then all of a sudden they're just poof, they're gone. So I guess make of that coincidence, even though I don't think it's a coincidence, make of that what you will. But how about this? According to Jesse Desmond, she's from the Mutual UFO Network, a.k.a. MUFON. She is the state director in Alaska. And she says that an alien encounter could actually be the reason why the Douglas went missing and has not been found to this day. Here's what she had to say. I do think the Douglas incident could have been intervention by a UFO. Well, there you go. (laughs) But then the question is, what type of intervention? I mean, was the Douglas beamed up in in a tractor beam into a giant UFO? Because remember, like I said earlier, the Douglas was no small plane. Maybe it was teleported to another location. Maybe it was shot down. I mean, there are reports, if you go back to the teleportation theory, just real quick, if we want to touch on that, there's reports of you know some type of strange negative and positive vortexes in Alaska, which maybe we can dive into further on, on another episode just on its own. But if you have these vortexes that have been reported in Alaska that's have also been reported to, you know, uh, make people hallucinate or cause confusion or even depression in some cases in the negative vortexes that occur in the Alaska Triangle. Could something like that, could some type of energy like that be harnessed by a otherworldly civilization? Could they harness an energy, an existing energy like that within this space of the Alaska Triangle to maybe create some type of portal or, you know, a vortex that would take down an airplane or transport it somewhere else. I think it's worth asking the question because nobody else knows what happens to this this airplane. If that was the case, though, like, let's just say it was shot down or let's say the pilots got confused, disoriented, maybe didn't see a mountainside coming up, even though it was clear blue skies and they are experienced flying in this area. Let's just hypothetically speaking, throw that case out there. Even if it did crash by some type of natural means like that, you would think that some type of debris would have been discovered by now, especially when you consider this fact. When the Douglas first disappeared, it prompted one of the largest recovery missions ever conducted in North America, not, not the United States, not Canada, in all of North America. Nearly 7,000 soldiers joined in on the search, along with over 80 airplanes, That flew missions to search the grounds in the Yukon Territory in and around anywhere that, you know, the airplane might have been. Of course, their efforts were for naught because not one remnant of the flight was ever found. And it's never been found to this day. Over 70 years later, you're talking, you know, 73 years. (laughs) Here we are in 2023. And that's over 70 years that nothing is found. So that is my... And I go back to it. That's my point here. Again, make it this what you will. I'm not trying to convince you one way or the other, but just the way I see this, if you're thinking about a a plane that disappears, normally there's some type of wreckage or debris that's found, even with the Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, when we covered that a couple of episodes ago, even something like that, as mysterious as that disappearance was, they were able to find a piece of the aircraft a couple of pieces actually that have washed up on different islands and been verified to be a part of that airplane at least something was found right if it was torn apart somewhere and and maybe uh during teleportation it's torn apart or if it just was crashed into the ocean in some type of trench that some people you know um theorize then there would be some type of debris and there was even though it's disappeared we still don't know what happened to you know MH370 at least we found debris and that's something that wasn't 70 years ago that was what 10 years ago somewhere in there this is over 70 years and now one piece has been found no sign of the of the 44 airmen no clothes no excuse the, the being graphic here but no body parts i mean nothing no sign of life so i don't know i mean how does something like that just completely disappear Again, this is the Alaska Triangle, so you have to ask yourself what's really happening. But let's take ourselves back to Anchorage, Alaska. It's just two days after the disappearance of the Douglas, which is now on January 28th, when yes, believe it or not, more strange lights are now seen over, I remember I told you to remember this name, right over Elmendorf Air Force Base. Here's what happened two days after the disappearance of the Douglas. And Elmendorf... Spotted three orange objects above the airbase. They hovered at around 25,000 feet. Then they mysteriously vanished. Now, a lieutenant colonel of all people sees something so bizarre, so unusual, that he has to file an unidentified flying object report It's a good point. I mean, if you have a lieutenant colonel who took something so seriously, it must have been pretty, you know, crazy to see that. But what a week, right? I mean, keep in mind again while all this was going on, the search and rescue teams were out and about trying to find the crew and wreckage of the Douglas. So this was the last thing anyone needed. We can also safely assume that the men on at the Elmendorf Air Force base were almost certainly suffering You know, from some type of frayed nerves as they were still reeling from the news of the disappearance of, you know, guys they probably knew who were on the Douglas. People were wondering what happened. So this side, he must have hit them really hard and which would also, you know, possibly explain why a lieutenant colonel would feel the need to file an official report. And keep in mind, this was an official report that went all the way up the chain again, which is why this entire week that we just covered within the Alaska Triangle has been documented these are all documented reports that are completely unexplained in that one week but just going back to those guys on the base when that was happening that night i can only imagine i mean they must have been traumatized and i mean i don't want to harp on it too much but i just feel bad because they must have been like oh my gosh not again what is happening i mean just put yourself in that position you're hearing about all these strange lights all week you have your buddies go missing on an airplane. No one can find them. And then you're seeing more strange lights. I mean, my gosh, that must have been stressful. So I can only imagine. And by the way, that report that was filed from this that that, that last part there on January 28th, the lights that were seen over the Air Force Base, the report that the lieutenant colonel filed, maybe not surprising at all. There was never any conclusion to the, uh, the sighting that was ever reported anyway, but we do know That it was reported. But man, I'm sure anyone who was a part of that week, who lived through that week, never forgot anything that they saw or went through. Also something to keep in mind, when we look at the validity of these stories, these are all things that can be traced back through official military and government documents. And that's what I always try to do. You know, when I present these stories to you or a subject or whatever it might be, I never want it to be like too conspiratorial, but I want to give you, you know, all the details like we always say, so you can you know, make up your own mind with stuff. But I also like there to be some type of source or reliable source to it that would kind of give it that extra oomph, that, that little punch of like, oh, wow, you know, this person's saying it. Well, there must be something to it. Maybe there is something to it. And that's what we have here because, remember, we know through these reports that were filed that an Air Force pilot did experience a close encounter with what he referred to as a threatening UFO. We know that the Douglas C-54 really did disappear without a trace to this day, and we know that those strange lights, whatever they may have been, really were seen over Elmendorf just two days after the Douglas vanished. We know all of this happened. We just don't know how or why. We know it was reported. We know it was experienced, but we just don't have the answers as to what these men were seeing and, more importantly, what happened to the Douglas I have no idea. Maybe you have theories on it. You could always reach out at Podcast 850 on Twitter. If you have theories on it, I'd love to hear it because it's just so strange to me how after 73 years, there is no trace or sign of life or wreckage anywhere in that area. And I know, you know, things get buried through snow and whatever it might be. Maybe it's, you know, an avalanche comes and stuff gets buried and you just never find it. I know there's natural things that would make it very hard to find any wreckage, but I don't know. You would just think at some point something would be found. Is it possible that it was taken by UFO or teleported even? Maybe this is more along the lines of something we heard about in the Philadelphia experiment, you know, where they transported to another time. Maybe it goes back to the story we were talking about last time in the, in the Bermuda triangle with the man who flew, was flying to Miami from the Bahamas And what happens, he goes through the, you know, the dark cloud, if you didn't hear the previous episode, went through what was referred to as the uh, uh, electric fog and comes out and he's in Miami in half the time. So that was something that, you know, we theorized or at least, you know, everybody who experienced that flight theorized something called dark energy. And not in the supernatural sense of dark energy, but the dark energy, the thing that, you know, they say made up the universe, that type of dark energy, You can't really see it. It also is a theory that that's what's responsible for wormholes. So that's why it, I just go back to that, because if you have the Bermuda Triangle with this type of phenomenon going on where you have lost time, you have basically time travel where that happens, you know, with this case that we covered it in the previous episode. Back in 1970, when this happened there in Miami, where you had the pilot go through and come out on the other side and getting there in half the time, but still had all his, you know, fuel in the plane and everything like that. If those types of things are happening in the Bermuda Triangle, then maybe it's the same type of cause in the Alaska Triangle that would make planes disappear. Do they have some type of electric fog Going on? Do they have some type of dark energy that is causing wormholes or vortexes that would make them travel through time or fast forward through time or come out on a different time period? And that's why these planes disappear. I mean, this isn't the only thing to disappear or the only flight to disappear in the Alaska Triangle. And we talked about the other military flight in the the Bermuda Triangle last time. So, can all of these be connected? That was Flight 19 that we talked about. In the previous episode that disappeared. That was, that was four or five planes that just vanished over the Bermuda Triangle. So how or why are these things all happening this way in these areas that are known for strange phenomenon, magnetism, dark energy, electric fog? Can it all be connected, whether it's Alaska or Bermuda or other parts of the world? Could they be experiencing the same cause that would have this type of phenomenon happen? Because it's also worth mentioning, like I said, it's not just you know a few flights that disappear. Just in general, since 1988, more than 16,000 people have disappeared in the Alaska Triangle area, which amounts to a missing person rate at more than twice the national average. Furthermore, in any given year, 500 to 2,000 people go missing in Alaska, just never to be seen again. They vanish. Now, I'm not saying that most, if... Maybe not all of that could be due to the rough and dangerous terrain that Alaska has to offer, but you also have to ask the question, with a rate like that, could something else be going on here? Maybe one of the things that we just talked about there relating to the Bermuda and the Alaska Triangles. Something else worth considering, though, might be the question, is there a strange cosmic connection to the very shape of the triangle, right? I mean, follow me here. I'm just going to throw this out here. We have the Bermuda Triangle. We have the Alaska Triangle. We have triangle UFOs that have been seen all over the world. We have triangles within sacred geometry, which I covered in a previous episode that you can always go back and listen to if you didn't hear that. Heck, we even have the pyramids of Egypt and other pyramids around the world, which on their face is a triangle. So I don't know if there's a connection there, but just a question, just an observation that I I thought was worth bringing up. But I'll leave you with this final thought. Why Alaska? If otherworldly beings really are to blame for some of these reported phenomenon, why does so much of it seem to happen there? These disappearances, these sightings. Well, let me bring back in here Jesse Desmond of MUFON to kind of give us a theory. And it's a theory that I actually tend to agree with. Alaska is a great place for UFOs because we have this vast amount of space and very few people, which means that they can do stuff without a whole lot of onlookers. I mean, it makes sense to me because you talk about that with Antarctica. I mean, we've covered different things with Antarctica, just the remote region that that is. And maybe I'll get into more of the mysterious happenings in that area. But, you know, if we want to say that there's a lot of activity in Antarctica because there's not a lot of human activity, it would make sense in these more remote regions of Alaska. Maybe that's why a lot of these things happen there. Or it does have to do with the energy that the Alaska Triangle area does give off—it's pretty wild. <laughs> I mean, could it be that simple, or maybe it's not even simple? I don't know. Maybe it's simplifying it too much, but could we connect all these theories together, different parts of the world, with all these strange reports? I mean, what do you think? Right? It's up—it's up to you. But man, it's—it's uh, it's interesting to think about—that's for sure. But next time on Episode 64 of UAP, I'm going to get into something that actually one of our, our listeners. Brought up to me, which was the subject of of what's referred to. It has the nickname of Golden Blood, and I've heard of it before. I've done a little research into it, and it's something that I it's been on my mind here and there. And I'm glad that uh, somebody brought it up to me. One of our listeners reached out on Twitter because it is something that uh, is definitely worth talking about and digging into. So we'll look into. What is golden blood and does it really have an effect? Could could it be a trace going back? Could it trace us back to possible human alien hybrid roots? This golden blood that is extremely rare that people talk about. So we're going to look into that next time, along with a couple of other fun things, as always, here on UAP, the Unidentified Alien Podcast. Feel free to always uh, continue to uh, to subscribe and download the show, wherever you get your podcasts. It's on Apple, it's on Spotify, it's on Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you normally get it, you can do that. You can always check out 850 WFTL as well and uh, on the UAP a blog page. All the episodes are always there if you want to catch up on that end too. And of course, I mentioned it on Twitter if you want to reach out to me there for the show at UAPodcast850 any feedback or ideas or theories that you have you know, pertaining to this or any other episodes that you might be catching up on always feel free to do that as well but that will do it for now here on UAP the Unidentified Alien Podcast thanks so much for hanging out with me for going through this new episode I hope you enjoyed it and like I said much more to come in the future thanks for sticking with me and we'll look forward to more UAP coming up in the very near future Stephen Diener I'll talk to you again soon